I'm Liza Hanks, and welcome to Life, Death, Law, a podcast about something we all share and almost never talk about, death. If you say to your doctor, I understand that you are not a soothsayer. I understand you don't have a crystal ball, but I do know that you have a lot of experience, and it's really important to me right now that you tell me what you're honestly thinking. That, I will tell you, is a release. That is, a, that is permission granted to have an honest conversation. That's Dr. Jessica Newtick Zitter, a critical care and palliative care physician who describes herself as an accidental activist. Here's how she describes it. I didn't set out to change the culture of medicine. I just found that I had no choice but to try. Jessica is a national advocate for transforming the way people die in this country. She's the author of the book, Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life, and the star of the movie, Extremists an award-winning documentary about end-of-life decision-making in a hospital in Oakland that's available on Netflix. I asked Jessica to be on Life, Death, Law because I loved her book and her work in the movie Extremists. Anybody with a critically ill loved one would want Jessica to be their doctor. In case you can't tell, I'm a big fan. So, hey, Jessica, I'm super glad that you've agreed to be on Life, Death, Law. I think our listeners have a lot to learn from the work that you're doing in the palliative care movement. And I have to tell you, I totally loved your book, Extreme Measures. And I didn't even know you were a movie star when I asked you to be on the show. But then I watched Extremists, a really beautiful movie about what it's like to have a loved one in the ICU. And I think in both the movie and your book, um, what you're doing is so important because you're showing, you're not telling, but you're taking people to a place that a lot of us are going to have to get in the end. And most of us have never been before. And I'm a huge fan of travel writing. And I think knowing what's going to happen helps you prepare better for the trip. And that's, you know, my goal and my work as a writer and as an attorney and as a host. And I think that it's your job. You see it as your mission too, right? Absolutely. So eloquently put, actually. Yeah, I think that for a lot of people, uh, they end up in the ICU with no idea what they're facing or what they're going to need to do. And so my first question to you really is, what would you tell families to get to help them be ready to represent and take care of a loved one in a situation where they're in the ICU and probably you're not their doctor, but when they have another kind of doctor who maybe they need to help understand what they need and what their loved one needs, where would we start there? Well, I was just actually talking to a cancer care journal for a, can- a cancer audience, and I was sort of actually laid it out this way. If you understand certain things about your doctor, and again, I'm generalizing, but I- I- I'm just speaking from a personal perspective, and I know a lot of doctors, and I've spent a lot of time talking about these issues with other doctors, and I think I can safely do some generalizing about how doctors think. And if you can understand some of the factors that are behind the way doctors approach their patients, you will be more empowered to think about how you want to be treated and what you need to ask for. Because currently, we have a default approach, which honestly isn't working for a lot of people. The default approach is essentially fueled by this, what I call a technological imperative, the sense that if we have technology, if we have new treatments, we should use them. And it's sort of fueled. This isn't just about how your doctor feels, but this is sort of a societal understanding and almost, I would say, a collusion, quite honestly, that there is this 
desire for perpetual life, almost a fantasy that we're all living in that we can kind of somehow always keep living, that there's always something that this healthcare system can offer us to keep us going. And I think if people step back and think about that logically, we know that's not true. Everyone knows that we're all going to die at some point. But that fantasy, I think, is really taking a big amount of real estate in human society. And we are all working together with all of these pharmaceutical companies that come on between CNN segments and tell you that they're going to fix you and they're going to cure you and they're, we're going to fight. We're going to do this with you. There's always something else to try. That messaging is so prevalent in our society that you can't escape it. And not only as a lay person, but even as a doctor, you sort of feel like that's your mission and that's what you're supposed to do. And that's what people are coming to you for. So the things that I would say to a lay public and to lawyers, by, by the way, that you, that you need to understand about the way we're working here in the hospital um, as the gatekeepers of information, critical information, which we know isn't getting through to you, is this. We don't want to be wrong. We're terrified of being wrong. We're terrified of making people angry, emotional, upset, angry at us, or thinking that we're failures or bad doctors. We don't, as a, as a specialty, and probably I would, I would bet that this is true in the law, but maybe a little bit less so because it's less threatening. You know, you're in a law office, you're not dying. When you're in a doctor's office or in an ICU, you might be dying. We are not good at communicating bad news. I think you guys might be better at this than we are. We never learned it in medical school. All we learn is physiology and what is that next treatment option. So we're, we're dealing without skills. Well, I have to say, you know, having been through the ICU experience with, you know, my father in 2010, and I've talked about this on the podcast, I could never get a doctor to tell me he was dying, but I knew that he was. And I had a palliative care nurse, like, in my back pocket on the phone helping me negotiate this. But this hospital didn't have a palliative care team at that point. And it was crazy making, right? Because lawyers, we write advanced directives for people and we say, what do you want at the end of your life? But I never understood until I was in that experience that no one will tell you when you're there, except you in the movie, right? I saw you do that with a, with a patient and you said, I think, you know, we need to be talking about the end here. And I thought, man, that's what I wish a doctor would have said to me. And I, I think a lot of my listeners and I know a lot of my clients have been in that situation as well, where they're, they're ready they think that they've thought through what they want, but nobody tells them that they're there. So how do you, so if I am a family in the ICU and my doctor is telling me about the next thing that we're going to try, how do I change the conversation or what resources in the hospital can I lean on to help me have the conversation we should be having instead of the conversation that we actually are having? Two things. I want, I want to answer that question, but I want to first point out in the movie, and I use this as a teaching tool. I, I use the movie and the book as a teaching tool for a lot of medical trainee audiences. And one thing I point out to people to try to show them, to, to, to welcome, to really welcome the conversation and reflection is there are several moments in that movie where I, as a very pretty well-trained and experienced palliative care physician, in addition to being an ICU doctor, have trouble getting the words out. There's one moment in the movie where I say, what we're seeing right now is the result of what's, you know, end stage myotonic dystrophy. And I explain to the audiences when I'm teaching that those words in that moment, I had a hard time. I had to force them out, even I. So this is really hard stuff. It's deeply difficult to tell people bad news when they're hoping and praying and terrified. So 
what would I tell people about what they can do to be empowered to get the information you need? I always say you can't plan for a good death if you don't know that you're dying. Right. That was the quote from your book I was going to read back to you. So I'll check that off my list. You can't. And it's impossible. People do not know. As another thing I say is people will always follow us into battle if we lead them there. And that's what we're trained to do. We're like firefighters. We're just constantly running into new fires and people are just going to follow us there because that's what, of course, anybody would do who either themselves wants to live or loves their loved one who's dying. So here are some pointers. Okay. Number one, understanding what we just said about doctors being afraid of being wrong. If you say to your doctor, I understand that you are not a soothsayer. I understand you don't have a crystal ball, but I do know that you have a lot of experience. And it's really important to me right now that you tell me what you're honestly thinking, even if you can't, you know, can't be perfectly sure that you're right. That I will tell you is a release. That is a, that is permission granted to have an honest conversation. Now I will tell you that we don't usually get that from patients and families. And so what happens is I've got these very eager, like, tell me, what are you going to do? What are you going to do for me? Uh, a lot of the time. And to actually bring that bad news into the conversation, we're taught like how to do this. We get drilled and this is what we do in palliative care. And it's still hard. So if you can make it a little bit easier for your doctor to bring in what they think is happening, you will get more information. Okay, so in terms of paperwork, in terms of an advanced directive, right, where you say a lot of people come to the hospital and they don't even have the basic document that you need to know what they would or wouldn't want at the end of life. But even for the people who do have that, advanced directives and the one that you talk about in the book that um, you confess you did sign, although I hope you have by now, that's the California Medical Association Guide. I know that orange booklet really well. Um, it doesn't say very much, and you could drive a truck through the language that it does say which is why you didn't want to sign it. And I guess what I'd like to know is what would you like to know from families? What do you wish an advanced directive said and didn't say so that when you're meeting somebody for the first time and they're like unconscious, you have a sense of what their values were and what they wanted? Because I think that's something that lawyers could do better. Um, and we don't talk to each other very much, lawyers and doctors. The thing I'm really struck with is, you know, have you ever been to London? You know how when you get on the tube and they say, mind the gap? Well, that's kind of been my motto lately with this project, because I think there's a huge gap between what we write and what you do. And I think that our clients and our patients fall right in the middle. So true. So true. So true. So true. Hoping that this podcast can help spark conversation between the disciplines as well about how we could give you documents that help you do your job better. So what would that be? Well, here's what I would say. The fact is that an actual advanced directive is just not helpful to me. I mean, and, and but, what, but by saying that, I'm not saying don't fill it out. You should fill it out. It's very important. It's a very important first step. It's a very important high level sense of who you are. But that's for you and your loved one to then delve in further so that you can give me the actual practical information I need to figure out what the next set of steps should be that I would recommend to you. Now, the, the critical part of an advanced directive that's so, so important is choosing a surrogate correctly. And you know about this as a lawyer. I'm sure you, you deal with this all the time. Like, how do you pick that surrogate? You assume, one would assume, uh, that it should just be that next, you know, the wife, the husband, the sister, the daughter, whoever is sort of in that scale of, you know, 
closer, more distant relative, the next in, in that scale. That's just not true. And I can't tell you, and you see it in my book, how many experience I, experiences I've had where Number one, in advance, a surrogate wasn't chosen, and we had to presume who that next person would be. And the person who you might assume would be that that surrogate in that next sort of ladder step ladder of proximity, genetic proximity to the person, or not genetic, but marriageable or relational proximity, was the worst person to be their surrogate. And so, what's very very important is for people who care about this stuff, which I think should be all of us, to think about who it would be that would be most equipped to stand strong in the face of emotion, in the face of fear, in the face of an existential crisis, and carry out, not the actual medical treatment plan, but carry out the information transfer about who you are and what would be important to you. So it takes two things to be that person. It takes knowledge of deeply who that person is and how uh, the the multivariable situation that they find themselves in, which I'll talk about in a second, how they would answer to what the next steps should be. So they need to be able to channel you based on a lot of knowledge. And by the way, that requires a lot of conversation to be had, which we'll talk about in a second. The second thing is they need to not only have the knowledge about you, but they also need to have the fortitude of, of character. Because when somebody says, well, I don't think she would want it, but I can't let her go. Or this is what I think she would want, but I'm not able to, I can't make that decision because that's, that feels too, too scary. That's not really a great person for you to have as your surrogate either, because there are some difficult decisions that might need to be made. And they might include allowing a natural death, disconnecting machinery, not doing that next round of chemotherapy that the chemo th- that the oncologist is offering and to not do something requires uh, a certain type of when it's when it's being offered by the medical system requires a certain ability to stand strong in the face of a lot of complexity and that it, it, so information and, for, and, and strength of character are who you want in your surrogate. And it might be a friend. It might not even be a relative. So choosing that is the first and most important part of the advanced directive, which I know you work very closely with your clients to do. I do, but I think it would be great if you could uh, tell our listeners a, a story, kind of ground it in a, in a real-life story. I'm sure you have plenty. I know I've read some in your book. Well, uh, we can talk quickly about that one that I, I talked to you about, my, my very close friend who's a trust and estates lawyer. Um, and she has gazillions of stories, as I'm sure you do, um, one of which I report in the book of a family uh, where there was this, you know, very wealthy guy with his kids and they had this, you know, empire, business empire. And she just kept trying to get him to sit down and make a transition plan for what if he couldn't, and what if he no longer, and he just wouldn't do it. And he kept saying, you know, how can I give away my baby? How can I even talk about giving away my baby, my business? And in the end, he ended up having a terrible stroke. And the entire uh, business not only went down down the tubes because there was no transition plan and no, but also the, the, the his children, his beloved children, um, basically ended up hating each other. And I think, you know, I would assume you see that a lot. I mean, I, I, I think it's just a question of planning, you know, leaving things to chance is not, not a good choice, especially for someone who's a savvy business person. But there, but that story is about 
refusal to plan and denial. But um, what I'm looking for is a story about a really effective advocate for somebody in the ICU. I bet you have one of those. And if you don't, that's okay. Oh, I got tons. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have so many of them. Um, uh, you know, uh, I mean, there are some situations, you know, in my in my hospital, a lot of people haven't really talked about this stuff. I mean, this is these these conversations usually are had by people who have sort of a slightly higher level of education and sort of socioeconomic status than the patients I tend to take care of. And so I don't see a lot of advanced care planning, but I do sometimes see uh, see it. And in fact, you see some examples of it in, in the movie of people who are having these conversations and uh, really, you know, saying, you know, that that son who says in the movie, um, look, I don't want to see him go, but I ask the patient, you know, would you want to be on a breathing machine? And he's not on a breathing machine right now, but he has the potential. He's got serious lung disease. And he says, I don't want to be in a breathing machine. I don't want to suffer. And his son sort of says, well, it's, it's his choice. I don't want to see him go. But, and my hope is that when that man did come in, in some sort of respiratory distress, uh, that his son would have said, you know, I had that conversation with him and he didn't want to be on, on this machine. And I've seen, you know, I had, a, we had a patient, uh, oh, uh, you know, just the other day, uh, 83-year-old man who came in, had been at home, had fallen, just acutely dropped down, hit his head, an unrecoverable neurologic in injury. He had ruptured uh, his, uh, abdo his aorta and that's, you know, and, and, but had yet, it had sort of not been bad enough that he'd actually died, but his, his neurologic status was, was very unlikely to recover. And he was in our emergency room and we were called down to come and see him. And the question was, well, do we want to go ahead and try to repair this ruptured aorta or does this family want to allow a natural death and take him off of the breathing machine? You know, it was, it was a heartbreaking scene. In fact, it was one of the, I, I cry sometimes, and this was one of the, those those cases where I, I actually cried, and I was I was actually a little embarrassed because uh, the the woman there was something about her that kind of reminded me of my mother. I mean, they hadn't actually, you know, she she sat there and she said, ah, "How can I go home without him? How can I go home without him?" And there were two sons there, and one was very very stoic, you know, the other one was sobbing, total. To they said, "I can't believe this." Two weeks ago, we had we filled out their advance directives with them. Two weeks ago. And so th it was just by total luck. Here's an 83-year-old man. And just two weeks earlier, the family had sat down and filled out advanced directives and, and had some conversations about this. So despite the incredible grief of this loss of this man, just like that, uh, they had, they knew what to do. And even though they were, you know, she wanted nothing more than to, to keep him alive and to keep his body, she knew that this was not going to work. And we withdrew the ventilator and he died very quickly. Um, but that was a lucky thing that they had had this planning session two weeks earlier. Absolutely. I mean, I tell my uh, clients all the time that the documents are just the invitation for the conversations they need to have. If your loved ones know what you wanted and they have to make that decision, it makes a really, really difficult decision a lot easier. If that family had not had that conversation two weeks earlier, there's a very, very good chance that they would have kept him on the machine with, you know, this, this hope that he would have had some neurologic recovery, which I can tell you would not have been barely anything. And, and, and he would have gone on to be one of those patients in a long-term acute care ventilator facility, you know, traked and pegged and living in a ventilator facility, which we have so many, so many patients like that. And that they should know what it looks like 
to be on the other side of that decision, which is life in a ventilator facility with tubes surgically implanted into people's bodies, lying in beds until they die. We have, it's an epidemic. It's a called chronic critical illness, and it's rising rapidly, this, this prevalence of this condition. Oh my God, that is like the best, worst story. Because that's what I want people to understand, that the, the consequence of not making a decision isn't that a decision doesn't get made. It's that they don't have control over the decision that does get made. People do not know that until they're in the situation that's the worst situation for making any kind of decision, which is a crisis. Do you want to talk a little bit about palliative care and how people might be able to take advantage of that and they might not be aware of what that is? It's a secret to a lot of people and it shouldn't be. And um, you write about that in the book as well. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to help people understand that that might be an option for them and, and how to seek it out in a hospital setting where they might not know about it. Very important stuff. The palliative care movement really kind of came into being officially in around 2008 in the United States. I mean, it's always existed in the backgrounds and there've always been people who practice that way. But, you know, it, 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 the way our healthcare system works is that if the medical community accepts it and validates it, then it starts to become a real thing. But the concept of palliative care is that you are really looking at suffering from all angles and trying to address it, something we just do not do and aren't trained to do in our typical medical training, to really prioritize that suffering, management of suffering. And that suffering can be in the form of Obviously, physical pain, shortness of breath, itching, you know, uh, nausea. But in addition to physical manifestations of suffering, there's so many other types. There's spiritual suffering, existential crises, the social experience of going from being a productive member of society to being incapacitated, the family dynamics that surround the family suffering, the financial burden of having an ill one. There's so many pieces of this that we are just not attending to in our healthcare system. And the palliative care movement is about focusing on the holistic experience of a person who is at the end of, who's a pro, who's, who has serious illness. Now, this is an important distinction. Not all patients who will benefit from palliative care are dying. Many are, but not all. A lot of patients uh, have suffering years before they're going to die, decades before they're going to die, that isn't being addressed by the system, and they also may benefit from palliative care. It happens that many of our patients are approaching the ends of their lives, and you see, obviously, a lot of unmitigated suffering as, as patients begin to approach the ends of their lives. So this is where palliative care is, is primarily centered, but not completely. So we do this work. Uh, in what what we're calling some people call it interprofessional, interdisciplinary, transprofessional approach, which basically calls a variety of different expertise into the room, different professionals with different expertise into the room to work together as a team to attend to a patient and family's needs. So, for example, yesterday I had a patient who. Uh, is suffering profoundly. She ha is close to the end of her life. She's a, a youngish woman in her 40s with terrible, terrible laryngeal cancer. And it's a huge mass in her neck and she, she will die from it eventually. She currently has a trach so that she can breathe around it because it was compressing her airway. And I, this woman is having a, a huge amount of distress. She's 
she's also got drug-seeking behaviors and, you know, it's hard to manage. And we were called into like, how do we, you know, let's talk to this woman and how can we manage her? She's asking for a lot of pain meds and, you know, she's dying and I don't think she knows it. And I, you know, she still wants us to do everything. And so can you guys talk to her? So we came in and have been, you know, creating a relationship with this woman. And it's just been amazing for me as a doctor, particularly an ICU doctor, who's always the one with the tech, the tech, the, you know, the expertise to help somebody in the ICU to realize that in fact, what this woman most needed was spiritual support from our chaplain. And in fact, I had so much less to offer her. Uh, and so I, it was, it was a fascinating moment for me because I sat on the bed, I was sitting next on the bed and our chaplain, Betty Clark, who is an amazing woman was sitting closer to the patient. And she was like the most talented surgeon but she was a spiritual surgeon. She was coming in and she was seeing this woman with spiritual suffering. This woman said to me, actually, before I brought Betty, that's why I went back to get Betty. She said, she's talking to me through her trach, you know, putting her finger on her trach. I don't understand why my God would let me die in my forties. I believe in God and I've been a good Christian. And I was like, ah, spiritual distress. Can I bring, so I brought Betty in and Betty, I just watched her. She sat with this woman. She spoke with her in a way that I could never, ever have spoken to her. I, I didn't even know the language. And I watched this woman, this patient's face, as she listened to this faith leader talk to her and talk to her about her faith and make room for her faith as, and her hopes as well as the reality of the medical situation and weave together the support that this woman needed in order to progress forward. And it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And I had nothing to offer. And I felt uncomfortable. Like, what's, what's my role? Am I really a doctor? Like, what am I doing here? And I said to Betty afterwards, I said, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with, uh, am I really, look, you know, when I'm an ICU doctor, I know I've got this to do and I can, I, you know, I can manage a ventilator and most people can't. What am I doing here? You know, you did this beautifully. And she said, well, you know what I think? She said, I think that having a white coated doctor witnessing, witnessing her suffering, staying in the room, holding our hands together as she prayed. And by the way, we went on to the next patient and the same thing happened. She said, that is a valuable therapy as well. And I'm starting to realize, like, it's been hard for me to understand that we're sort of, we're in palliative care, we flatten the team. We don't have the same hierarchical structure that you see in the rest of medicine. We're flattening the team. And it's so powerful. And it's so powerful for our patients. And our patients feel honored and respected and attended to in a way that Patients in the rest of the hospital just don't get. So that's a little example of what palliative care does. But in addition to the support and the, and the attending to suffering, it's also we are the people who are the liaison, the communication liaisons between the people providing the treatments and all the different things they're going to offer and the patient to marry the patient's preferences and values, to discover the patient's preferences and values, which isn't being done for the most part, like in a deep way in the medical profession to marry it to a, a plan that makes sense. And that I think is one of our biggest offerings. And that, that, 
you know, hopefully is not going to just be relegated to the palliative care community 10 years from now. That will be something that most physicians start to learn how to do. But that's a long time coming, I got to tell you. So how does somebody get access to palliative care in a hospital setting if their doctor doesn't recommend it? It's a good question because, again, it's different from institution to institution. My belief is that palliative care consultation should be able to be requested by anybody, including the housekeeper, including the nurse, include anybody should be able to say, I want a palliative care consult on this patient. We're still kind of in between the model where you have to ask the physician's pers- you know, permission because the, the doctor really owns the patient. Well, that's not, it shouldn't, I can understand how it would be that way for a cardiology consult, but for this, it's different. I think this is a different type of consultation. This is a human consultation. And if anybody feels that a patient is not being attended to as a human and all of their personal needs are not being satisfied, I think anybody should be able to call a palliative care consult. And we should be able to step in and intervene and make recommendations regardless of whether or not the doctor wants us to be there. And I've you know, been fired from cases at times because, well, you're going to take away my patient's hope or you're... And I don't I don't know that that, I think ultimately that shouldn't be allowed. I think that this is a different kind of consultation and I think anybody should have access. It should be able to be called by anybody, including the patient and family. Mm-hmm. But but it, but how about now? Like, what's the reality for people in the hospital these days? This is an important point. The number of patients in any hospital environment who would benefit from the types of offerings that a palliative care team has is so much larger than who's actually getting palliative care. The problem is you can never, ever have enough palliative care doctors and nurses and spiritual and chaplains to support all of those people. We have to start understanding that the palliative care world cannot be responsible for attending to the suffering of all the patients who need suffering attended to. We've got to start doing what we're calling primary palliative care, where the oncologist knows how to do some basic palliative care, basic communication and management of pain and suffering. The surgeon knows how to do it. The ICU doctor knows how to do it. You can't attend to it just from the palliative care team. That's a pretty radical proposition that caring for suffering should be an integral part of all medical practice, don't you think? I think it's both radical and completely obvious at the same time. It's radical because it's far from what we're doing. I think that's awesome. And that's a perfect way to wrap this up. Is there something that I didn't ask you that you wished I had? So many things to talk about. Um, well, we can do it again. I hope so. I'm just thrilled that you're doing it. I'm I'm really hoping that this will benefit some of your your maybe your colleagues and not only your your clients. But uh, this is this is we have to approach this. It takes a village. Well, just like you, I think there's two parts to it, right? There's educating our my clients to be more empowered and educated, and then there's educating my profession to be more human. I think it's the same task that you see. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. It is. You've just listened to my interview with Dr. Jessica Zitter. To learn more about her work, go to her website, jessicazitter.com, J-E-S-S-I-C-A-Z-I-T-T-E-R.com. Her book, Extreme Measures, is available wherever books are sold, and the movie Extremists is available for viewing on Netflix. And I have links to all of this on the show notes to this show. Thanks for listening to this episode of Life, Death, Law. To find out more about today's episode, or to send me a question or a suggested topic for future podcasts, go to lifedeathlaw.com 
send me an email at lifedeathlawpodcast at gmail.com or call me on the Life Death Law phone line at 669-232-0872. That's 669-232-0872. To subscribe to Life Death Law, go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. So take care, and remember, when it comes to life and death and law, we are all in the same boat. Until next time, I'm Liza Hanks. Bye. Bye.